Darren's fact. Fact of the day. <laughs> Poke your own eyes. Introduce it or am I introduced? You know, I never introduce it. Hello and welcome to episode 81 of the world famous uh, Hedgepods Orgy podcast. Let's just pretend that this is continuous from episode 80 because, you know, you did that just oh so recently. Um, <laughs> I'm the Snyder Cut and I podcast with John Conway. John Conway. <laughs> Um, so, uh, now welcome new listeners. We're around about, just check the figures there. It looks like about 11.4 million listeners at the moment. Um, normally we do a follow-up. F you, John. F you, Darren. So, uh, you know, just talking about things that follow on from the previous episode and any corrections that we might need to make. Um, now in your listen through of episode 80, what did you notice? Nothing. <laughs> it was a flawless performance. Um, yeah, I, I, I haven't listened to it. So, <laughs> um, have we discussed uh, Tet Zoom Con? We haven't, have we? But hang on. When was episode? When did we do episode eighty? It was probably about a year ago now, wasn't it? It was. It was. It was last year. It was in the last month. Before yeah. Tet Zoom Con, so it was like six months ago. Okay, I've got. I, I have no memory of it or really when it was so that's very good yeah <laughs> you know we do have a website that can tell us these things yeah um i don't i don't think we've discussed it uh, now i'm saying it i think we might have uh, no i don't think we have because if you look in the summaries of the, the if you look at what we said about episode 80 we talk about in the blurb we um talk about advertising it like a date for it which, which surely means that, that we recorded before it had happened. So we're saying mm. come to TetZoomCon, but we haven't discussed it afterwards. I, I know, yeah, I'm you're sure. right, you're right. So, the, okay, this is great podcasting. Yeah, so our last one was on November the 24th. Episode 80 was on November the 24th, and TetZoomCon was on the 12th of December. Yeah. So what do you want to say about it? Um... Geez, I wish we'd done this a bit sooner because I can barely remember anything. So it went pretty well, I feel. Um, the biggest Tet Zoo event in history, so far, ever. in history, exactly, in the history of the world, the universe, in the history of the universe, yeah. 400 people. Um, God, yeah, you better go on. Yeah, it's 400 people from, you know, uh, okay, so. For understandable reasons, our audience for physical tet zoo cons is predominantly UK based. We do have visitors from the continent and even from the Americas. Um, had a couple of people from the US and Canada come over, but for this one, it was like, wow, the representation from North America is really strong. Uh, loads of people from continental Europe, really good representation from Eastern Asia, like Singapore, Japan, uh, a whole bunch of Australians. And then um, people from Guadalupe is the only one I remember for, from various far-flung locations around the world where it's like, wow, you know, that's uh, 
Oh, the Middle East was like relatively well represented, I seem to remember. Um, yeah, so like a true, it felt it felt like yeah, understandable reasons. You open it up to a global audience, you're going to get a global audience, and um, bigger so yeah. far. And essentially, you know, uh, I was fairly concerned about technical glitches, you know, dropping internet and all the sorts of. Um, we're on Zoom right now because Skype isn't working for us and these glitch you know all these like problems you have on digital communications like that's going to be terrible if someone's internet connection is bad uh, and and basically the whole point of this is none of that happened it was essentially i don't think i don't think there were any internet drops uh, at all for the whole duration everything went smoothly all of our speakers were good and kept to time with one exception <laughs> <laughs> and, and um and in terms of like you know interface um you know and breakout rooms and the the after party and stuff yeah huge success so so yeah um i was i was paranoid about the tech stuff sleepless nights beforehand because it was clear by you know a couple of days beforehand that it was going to be huge and you really, really, really don't want to disappoint 400 people, um, especially when you've taken some money. Um, I was so relieved at how well it went technically. But what did surprise me was the um, was the after party. And uh, I was thinking that people would might might not even really enjoy it because, you know, we were even even by November last year, people were getting quite a lot of Zoom fatigue. And socialising on Zoom is always a little tricky. So for people that weren't there, I guess, we, we split everyone up into smaller rooms and shuffled them around occasionally, as was my plan, um, which I hoped would work. I'd never been on anything like that. I'd never seen it work, so I was just hoping that it would. Um, and and it seemed to work really well because it went, <laughs> it went on for how many hours, Darren? 23 hours, I believe. 23 hours of Zoom after party. Um, obviously, not everyone stayed for the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. So the but afternoon. We left it open next. for anyone that wanted to hang around and chat for like a whole day um, and at night. And they'd already been to Ted Zoom. They'd been to the talk. So these people had been up for, yes, <laughs> a long mm. time. Mm. Yeah. And it, and it was, you know, I, I think part of the appeal is that, um, you know, you get not not only do you have all these people coming together, but you get like a chance to kind of, you know, rub shoulders with names that, you know, in the world of uh, it's the the sort of, you know, the, the, the crazy people that are staying up for 23 hours on Zoom are sort of like the paleo art contingent, which is obviously a big part of what we do. Um, so it's, yeah, kind of dominated by them. But um yeah i feel like there must have been a bit of a um well because people haven't been going to you know paleontological meetings or paleo art meetings of any sort i think there was probably a bit of a pent-up desire for a social occasion with paleo people that you don't really get to see yeah we haven't got to see for well it was six yeah. months at that point which isn't that long but yeah so on on the on the risk of um of things failing you know that's partly partly why we kept ticket prices low and um, because, you know, we were really concerned that if things fail, well, then, you know, it's not that bad if, if, if you've lost 
the equivalent of like 10 pounds or dollars um but you know in reality given the amount of work that we put in at our end then the, the, the you know the, the quality of our speakers and whatnot it's not it's not impossible we might have to charge higher but even so i think uh, it's generally agreed that it's fair a fair deal even if it is a bit more expensive and um coming off the back of how successful that was i mean you know enough time's passed now for me to for both of us to have kind of forgotten it but i certainly thought oh wow that was such a success we've got to do it again who wants one next month hey as a, a, a monthly thing it's like that's not going to happen but um um john and i haven't discussed it yet but certainly at some point um i, I don't know i mean you know th things are supposed to return to some semblance of normalcy like supposedly in the summer <laughs> um at least so physical meetings might be back on the table by later in the year <laughs> yeah i mean as we know all know right i i'm i'm an optimist about this stuff but um yeah yeah who knows who knows what can happen and um yeah we don't i think it's, i think we don't really want to have a meeting if we're going to get half the turnout that you normally get we, yeah we did we, we literally can't i don't think we don't have the um we can't cover costs if we don't yeah the numbers up so well yeah where i was going with that is like let's say we do have a physical meeting you know a normal tetsucon london based in the later months of 2021 do we also have a zoom based do we have a tetsuom con as well because um like i don't know i think so i think people really liked it and i do like the fact that we can reach people that are in well countries and places that, that, that just never make it to london right um, yeah so what so, do you think so are you saying that we should have two a digital and a meet space meeting like every year um yeah i guess so yeah i don't i don't think it's impossible i don't think it's uh yeah all of these things take days of preparation, but I think that the, the digital event took less hard work in terms of preparation than the, the physical one. So. Yeah, especially recently, the physical, um, because uh, London venues were getting really bulky and expensive. Um, <laughs> mm. they, the physical, uh, organising the physical one was getting pretty uh, iffy even you know because everyone anyone that had a venue was uh, like oh we can raise prices we can keep raising prices i don't know whether covid will have fixed that <laughs> yeah um, yeah but yeah. yeah and of course uh, we we had actually arranged uh, successfully a new physical venue for tetsucon mm. in late 2020 <laughs> which was, was like, a bit great. frustrating yeah yeah like, wow loads more space and everything so uh, all right Good. well yeah thanks yeah. so much to everyone who is uh, you know, who, every, our speakers were excellent. Um, you know, and thanks to everyone who attended and uh, was involved and made it what it was. The over 400 people. There's a there is a Tet Zoo article uh, summarizes it. Oh, I, I won't check it now because I'll start reading it and then get confused. Um, that summarizes exactly like you know. How yeah. So people. sorry. Yeah. Well, I was just so, well, was where they came from and the talks we had. So I think we can say that I think there will be a Tet Zoom Con sometime this year. Whether there's a probably later this year, if there, because uh, I'm less certain about the physical Tet Zoom Con. Yeah, but we'll definitely be able to do a Tet Zoom Con, which I think we should do. Yeah. News from the world of Darren and John.
Okay. Um, right, so that's that. Um, did I talk about my uh, TV series, Alien Worlds, on Netflix, which was released in December? I may have done. Uh, you did talk a little bit about it coming up, yeah. obviously, but I... It's now such a dim and distant memory. Obviously, you know, I and anyone else interested would have seen it back in mid-December. It um, is listed in um, the what we talked about in episode 80. Okay, all right. So there you go. I won't cover it anymore. Again, if you want to know more about it, there is a Tetrabot Zoology article. Um, it, it, and it, and I, forgive me if I'm repeating myself, because like, I can't remember what I said. But um, yeah, it, it did pretty well. It's uh, It was in like top 10 most viewed things on Netflix for the better part of December. And um, yeah, I'm fairly happy that I'm there in the credits. Obviously, I had no um, input on like, you know, how the final edit was built. So all the, so, so people that are unhappy about like the actual, um, the, the percentage of um, CG animals versus like, and here's people talking about hummingbirds in the Amazon. Like, I, you know, I wasn't involved in that at all. Obviously, I was just involved in the creature design. And, and whenever you come up with creatures, aliens or whatever, some people think, oh, they're great. That's really clever. And others like, that is the stupidest thing I've ever seen. You should be ashamed of yourself. So uh, you have that kind of thing to <clears throat> deal with. Mm-hmm. Um, Never you- make anything, Darren. Never do, never do anything because you open yourself up for criticism. So just don't do anything. Yeah. New art from John, it says here. All oh, right. <laughs> what have I actually put out? Uh, Platocarpus with the human <laughs> face on the chest. <laughs> lightning, lightning conductor fork tongue thing. There's that. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Don't have to talk about it if you don't want to. Well, I've got really nothing to say about that one. Um, yeah, I've been um, plugging away at sauropods, I guess. I've been doing that for a while. Um, I lose track of time so badly. I don't know whether I've talked about the sauropod paintings. I think we talked about this last time, so I'm still doing sauropods. Yeah. I did a um, couple of um, Tyrannosaurus head things recently. I partly did this because I had the paintings. One of them was an old painting and I was just trying out new techniques. And one of them uh, was sort of sitting around half finished from years ago, um, which is sort of experimenting a little bit with movement and 3D. Oh, trying to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's yeah. good. I was holding a, holding a toy Tyrannosaur up to the camera with its mouth wide open. As per your uh, <laughs> brightly yes. coloured mouth brightly interior. Brightly coloured mouth interior, yeah. Yeah. Um, and people seem to like those. Um, it's the the technique is really um, limited. I've always been interested in paintings that move just a tiny bit, just like a little bit on the edge of perception. Like, is this is this thing moving? Um, is it in three D? That sort of stuff. Um, but the techniques. I realise that if you really do that, like it's just like literally on the edge of perception, people don't notice. And, but if you go too far, things look really, um, what's the word, cheesy. So it's sort of finding this balance between people not even noticing the things moving at all and uh, cheesiness. 
I've done things like this before, um, sort of slightly moving paintings and stuff. And I've always been surprised at the lack of reaction to them, actually. You know, um, people, I, th I came to the conclusion years ago that people weren't really watching video. And so I kind of stopped because, you know, well, that thing took me like three weeks to make and like, I don't know, three people watched it or something, you know. So I, I kind of stopped, but I don't think that's true. I think they just didn't want to watch long things. Well, so how are you? Short, how yeah. short things like this, you know, that just autoplay on Twitter. I was going to say, how are you um, recording, you know, interaction and what you call it? You know, how many people actually look at it? Well, Twitter um, provides you views. Yeah. Um, and also, obviously, likes, which is my metric for everything. <laughs> right. I like <laughs> likes. Uh -huh. <laughs> you know how there's all this de debate in social media, how we'll turn likes off and all that? I'm like, no, I love likes. I mean, it's, I don't feel super bad when I don't get a lot of likes, but I, I feel pretty good when I get a lot of them. So <laughs> they just seem like a good thing to me. I'll, oh, yeah. And I'll be crossing turn them off. I've, I've paid attention to, um, so my Tetsu, my crypto mega threads. Uh, if something is retweeted like over a thousand times, I can accrue over 300 followers yes. like from that one event. So I'm like, that's, that's pretty significant. That's, that's gives you impetus to keep on doing more of that thing. Um, exactly. If you're interested in building your re your outreach audience. And also artists really don't like to talk about this, but I do art for other people. I don't do it for myself. I want people to like it and likes are a measurement, not the only measurement, but they are a measurement of how much people like it and how many people mm. like it. And so, yeah, um, this stuff doesn't make me feel bad. I feel I, it makes me, it's, it's interesting and useful information to me. Um, yeah. And, you know, it does help build your audience and all that, obviously professionally, but yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> I guess if you approach it in that sort of way that it's sort of, um, yeah, this is a bit insider, insider isn't it? We're talking like influencers, but it is like that. It is sort of our, it's my job. It's sort of your job. Um, not at the moment, but, um, so much, but yeah, to, to build audiences and give the people what they want. Yeah. So we're so, influencers, Darren, we're influencers. <clears throat> Without doubt. So the, the long videos you're saying don't work, but did the so much, but the short videos you're saying do, they do have like a. Yeah, they work a bit better. Although, you know, the the um it's interesting the 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 simpler Tyrannosaurus painting, you know, the one looks a bit like gorilla or whatever. Um the original <laughs> painting got more likes than the than the video version. So I'm like, hmm. interesting. Yeah. So I put another couple of days into that for less likes. Huh. But then people had seen it before, so Yeah, true. So we should talk about the open mouth one. Yeah. Um, for two reasons. First, yeah, let's of all, talk about the actual biology of things instead of the well, um, the meta stuff. You're right. Yeah. Well, well, you know, uh, it's the you know people often want to hear the sort of you know the backstory to like your either the creative process or the decision making involved. So the the brightly coloured mouth interior thing is is one thing. I, I, I obviously I know where that comes from, but the other thing is what you did with the teeth. Yeah. So I actually um, started this painting. It was a drawing. Um, we're just like bright patterns in the mouth. Yeah, it's in uh, uh, one of the Steve White's books, isn't it? Yeah, is it? I wasn't sure if it was. I should have yeah, checked. Totally is. Yeah, 
I don't remember what I was looking at at the time that made me do that. So I don't actually have an insight into why I did it. I mean, I can kind of imagine, but I'd be like guessing like anyone else, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> well, <laughs> so, so, so that's tell a us, good story. Yeah, tell us, tell but us the obviously backstory. I was looking at animals that use their mouths for display yeah. in some way, right? And thinking, well, Tyrannosaurus has a great big gorp and more, so it probably, it, it possibly it used it for something similar. Um, but that's kind of a guess, Um I think I might have been even looking at things which didn't necessarily have bright colours in their mouths, but were using their mouths for display. The main change, I think, from that version, apart from being in colour in 3D, is the, um, the, yeah, the, the lips and gums. Yeah, so I've, I've completely, almost completely covered the teeth because I've become convinced that that is what theropod dinosaurs probably looked like. Convinced. It's a strong word. Convinced in terms of that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> Convinced as in that's a possibility. Well, it is going to be my default. Yeah. I guess is what I'm saying. You know, that um, convinced in as in I should paint it like this. Right. <laughs> Not that it is certain. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. I think that we, we went through, uh, you know, we accepted, lots of people accepted lips, but then went, uh, you know, quite minimalist on it. And I don't think there's any particular reason for that. Um, if you want to cover your teeth, you want to cover your teeth, don't you? There's advantages to covering your teeth. So yeah, yeah. If you think if you think theropods have lips, then why not just do it properly? I guess that's the that's pretty much the argument. Um, apart from the whole lip argument, <laughs> mm. which is complicated, and I don't know whether you want to go into it. Not today. No, no, no. no. So yeah. So for those who aren't familiar with this, there's, there's this. Uh, in fact. Um, uh, RJ Palmer did discuss this in his talk at ZoomCon. The fact that you know loads of people, you know, do, doing paleo art, you know, looking at these constantly, looking at images of animals like Komodo dragons. The Komodo dragon is the uh, poster child here because these animals with these immense teeth. If you only knew them from the fossils, uh, apologies to people who's there's many people this very this is you know overly familiar stuff, but some of you it's not. Um, these monitors, their teeth are enormous. If you only knew of them from the skulls, you'd think that the teeth must be must be visible in life. Goes for a load of other lizards as well, like Gila monsters and their relatives, and slow worms and their relatives. And yet, in the living animal, uh-uh. <laughs> where are the teeth? Even almost... when they've got their mouths wide open. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Just so much soft tissue there. It's really amazing. Yeah. So yeah. was that, yeah, was that the case for, you know, big tooth theropod dinosaurs? It's now uh, yeah, totally on the cards and yeah, like we, we've, we've, we've touched it before. We're not going to do it today, but um, yeah, you've really gone to town on it. You're not the first to do it. Greg Paul did the same. Changed. Yep. Yeah. You know, oh, his yeah, famous. He's certainly from the exterior. Yeah. He's, um he's covered the, the mouths. He's, he's done, he's. There's there's a piece of his that probably uh, no I'm not going to say a date I'll get it wrong but there's two tyrannosauruses and one of them is like open mouth three quarters view and the other one is looking straight at you mm-hmm. so it's a drawing it's not a painting yeah, yeah, I know the drawing yeah. yeah and he changed it probably round about I'm going to say 2013 round about there and he changed it and he totally sheathed the teeth mm. um I, th- I think it's been it was published in full uh, prehistoric times 
and uh, yeah. you, you can find it online. But um, I think it might be in the Princeton Guide to Dinosaurs. Well, a version of it is, but not the one with the totally sheathed teeth, so far as I recall. I mean, I think he's yeah, there are two since. versions of the Princeton Field Guide to Dinosaurs. I'm aware of that. And I have both. But anyway, I probably shouldn't look this up because we're about to move on. I've got a first edition. You've got a second edition. Is this the second edition? No, that's the, no, first, that's the edition. first edition. So yeah. I've got, I can't find my second edition at the moment. And you've also got the, that's the, the, um, uh, the, that's the, that's the Princeton version. I've got, this is the ANC black one. Yeah, that's it. That's the second edition. Yes. It's thicker. <laughs> is that because there's more dinosaurs? There's more dinosaurs. <laughs> yeah. Oh, this is great. Both of us flicking through books. Yeah, on the this podcast. is great yeah. podcasting. Uh, great. Uh, let's just turn another page. Oh, look. Where is it? Where uh, is this drawing? It's, I thought it was right at the start, but it's not. In fact, is it even? Maybe it's actually not. <laughs> Maybe it's no, not in here at all. all. <laughs> I didn't think you were right, John. <laughs> no, I ain't seeing it. It's got there's that there's that short section on facial soft tissues and lips. And it's uh, not in that. It's bit. not that bit. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we should stop here. Never, um, never stop. <laughs> it's totally not in this book. It's not in the book. It's not in Dinosaurs A Field Guide or the Princeton Field Guide to Dinosaurs or whatever title it's got. It's got more than one title, you see. No. Okay. Good lord. So they so so um okay, so going back to the brightly colored mouth interior or the, the boldly patterned at least mouth interior of your T-Rex. So were you looking at grass finches? Were you looking at these like chicks of these little African finches that have got the specific like little codes on the insides of their mouths to cheat their um the the because they're parasitic, they they mimic the um the chicks of the host finches. Were you looking at those? See, it would be <laughs> I good. don't know. <laughs> it would be good to say yes, I suppose, but I don't think I was. Yeah. Because my memory is that I was looking at um a gamids. I think you were looking at gamids. I could have been, yeah. Because I was looking at threat displays, I think, not like yeah. I've got chicks. a vague, I got okay, I've got a vague memory of you and I talking about this and um, you being interested in toad-headed agamas, fr- I think they're called frina, frinocephalus, I think. These um, curly-tailed little desert-dwelling agamid lizards that um, some of them have like evolved to sort of like serrated. Oh, little, yeah, with the flaps. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds that sounds possible. Yeah, that that does sound likely. Oh God, Darren, getting old, huh? Yeah, this is why this is why you write your inspirations down and keep a log of like uh, what you're interested in, right? <laughs> like the John the John Conway memoirs. <laughs> I'll never forget the time when uh, I just drew some shit. Oh, yeah, I don't know. And the other the other thing I want to say is um okay, so look at my toy T Rex here, and uh, you know how have you ever seen these pictures of um. Do you know what bitterns are? They're cryptic, like reed bed dwelling herons. Mm. And they're 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 famous for a bunch of things. And one of them is that they, when they want to camouflage themselves, they like suck themselves in, like 
they like narrow their bodies as much as possible and they point upwards and then they look like reedy. But mm. even when they're pointing their bill upwards, the position of their eyes is such that even if the bird's head is pointing skywards, it still can look straight forward. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So with this Tyrannosaurus head, if I like point its nose upwards, that in some views, you can still see enough of the eye to think that the animal could literally do that and look interestingly this model's asymmetric <laughs> i can see it's <laughs> can see its eye on its left side but not on its right that's and you that's good realism that yeah and that's that's one thing that struck me about your model is your illustration even is like um we're we're seeing like the, the animal's palette and yet still the eye position because for those of you who don't know tyrannosaurus rex is an unusual theropod dinosaur because its cheeks are so broad that its eyes are so more laterally placed than they well, not laterally placed, that's the wrong term. They're um they're positioned like some distance out from the side of the muzzle because the back the back of the skull yeah, is so much they're what yeah, they're wider spaced. Yeah, yeah. So so could this animal still like like see things like underneath in a straight line that are ventral to its palate? And um I just I, I don't know. It's uh yeah, so that was that's all that was one of the main challenges with this painting and um well the original drawing I guess. And um it's always difficult to draw or paint a dinosaur in an unusual angle when you don't have a reference for that exact angle. And most uh, Tyrannosaurus skulls on skeletons mounted that you might be able to get a reference from are really super asymmetrical there um i think nearly all the skeletons and um i've seen are actually from the same same uh skull right i don't know the amnh 5257 yeah um and that one is super skewed uh it looks great from the side but you look at it from the front and you think oh that's a big mess um yeah and so if I tried really hard to to um, make sure it was right, but obviously it could be wrong. Um, yeah. And I often think that <laughs> when I'm doing this, I should get into 3D modeling because even if I just want to make paintings, um, you know, it's good to have a 3D model to make sure you've got everything right. Mm. Yeah, I, I, think, all... I think it's close enough. I was going to say, and there there are some, there are obviously good uh, uh, CG three D models of uh, Tyrannosaurus Rex. Kent Stevens, at least, has done one where they've corrected for uh, deformation. Because yeah, you're right. It's like the famous skulls are hideously deformed in some way, some more so than others. Sue FMNHPR two hundred eight one is famously like mangled so if you try it it's like you know got this like big sort of concavity on the snout and the front of the snout is much taller than it should be and yeah very asymmetric um there's and also there's a you know a, a condition of living animals which makes them different from bones and fossils is that the the convexity of eyeballs and the surrounding soft tissue is something that we often don't know at all we can't know it from fossils so we infer it and we tend to infer it conservatively for fossil animals like if you're building like all of the, the I'm, I'm prodding my own eyelids while saying this if you imagine all of the like how much your stop eyeball, poking yourself in the eye stop it it's freaking it's, me out you know, it's, 
Did you know it's good for you poking your eye? Slows down your heart rate and all kinds of weird stuff. I'm not joking. It's an actual fact. It does. Slows down your heart rate by rubbing your eyes. Darren. Darren's doctor, you know. Back to the day. Poke your own eyes. I'm Anthony Ice Johnson. I've got ants in my eyes. It's a Rick and Morty reference. Um, Think of like, so, so prod yourself in the eye and feel how much your um eyeball and the surrounding tissue projects beyond the bone the the bony edge of the orbit and there's like it's sticking out quite a way and yet we're animals with not like we don't have particularly stupid eyes where there's lots of animals have got really stupid eyes like giants or bulgy eyeballs you know how if you look at like rabbit or deer from like behind you can see like the or, or even a cat look at get one of your you got two yeah. cats haven't you get one of the cats and like look at it sort of like uh, don't have a toy cat to hand. I should, yeah, uh, they're out of reach. But yeah, you no, know what I mean. I, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, you can the, see the, stick out. Yeah. You can see the bulge of the eyeball almost from right behind the animal, and so for uh, yeah, yeah, that that that's basically my 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 point is like the the eyeball can bulge out quite a lot relative to the the surrounding bones. So um so so again, if you were looking at the, a T Rex directly from underneath such that you imagine the orbits, the actual, you know, the, the opening for the eyeball is completely invisible. It doesn't mean the eyeball was invisible. And if the and if like the curve of the eyeball is visible, sticking out like either sides of what I'm showing here, either sides of the snout, then the animal could well have seen you because, um, you know, you could be within its visual field. Yes. Maybe. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And I think this makes sense, might make sense of a lot of, um, you know, the big flat slab headed um, theropods where, if they had sunken eyes that have really limited field of view, they couldn't see ahead of themselves or anything like that. Whereas if they did have bulgy eyes, then they could see ahead. I mean, not binocular, but um, probably not very good. But yeah, uh, yeah, I it think... has. It's been worked out that they certainly have the capacity for some binocular vision, even when their eyes face pretty much laterally, because yeah. uh, there's still a range of. And the thing, uh, again, uh, Kent Stevens did did some some good work on this, um, on yeah, how much overlap they have at the front, how much binocular vision they should have the caveat is that even when you work out that animals do have an overlapping field of vision you don't actually know they definitely have um true binocular vision like i'm not a vision expert so i'm a bit shaky ground here but my understanding is that even if it seems like they have an overlapping field it doesn't mean in their brain that they do because there are living animals that have an overlapping field of vision and yet don't like actually they don't process it they don't use it yeah 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 um, the other the other thing about eyeballs is sclerotic rings and what they can tell you. And I don't think we've really. Um, I got into this a couple a few years ago. Um, read quite a bit of the literature, and I came to the conclusion then, which might be wrong now, that there's stuff there that we could know that we don't. Um, reconstructing the exact um, uh, sclerotic rings and how they actually fit together so yeah know, some of them the sclerotic ring is sort of pretty much what flat to the eyeball and sometimes it's oh sorry at let's say 90 degrees to the to the um direction of vision and sometimes it's it's para they're parallel like in owls and you know owls do crazy things with hourglass shaped sclerotic rings and everything um but yeah there are things we could know from fossils um if we could get some really good ones and <clears throat> reconstruct them nicely. We, I think we could um, figure out a bit more about what uh, 
dinosaur eyeballs were looking like. We did we did cover this on the podcast before. You made the yeah you made the same point, it's, and it's a good one. Um, and for some of these animals, um, it's kind of like a lottery as to where you get sclerotic rings preserved. Because mm. and tyrannosaurids in particular are a group where sclerotic rings are notoriously rare. It used to be said that no sclerotic rings were known for tyrannosaurids. Um, I think that's off the top of my head. I think that's no longer true. I think like the, that baby Tarbosaurus has got good sclerotic rings, and a couple of other specimens do as well. But um, in general, for big tyrannosaurids, they're um, like I think almost unknown. So uh, it's really interesting, that isn't it? I mean, that's taphonomy, which I've never really read about properly. But um, yeah, well, first, it's fascinating yeah. how things don't get preserved, and then suddenly, yes, they they totally exist, and they're all over the place. What? I looked into this, well, I, I did a, an ill-fated book on taphonomy years and years and years ago, which ultimately failed due to my uh, co-authors not doing any work on it whatsoever. But um, I looked into the taphonomy of sclerotic rings, and because in eyeballs, the the sclerotic ring is embedded within the sclera, this kind of outer layer of, you know, air quote skin on the outside of the eyeball, um, the fate of the eyeball, and the sclerotic ring. So what's not well known to people who aren't familiar with with reptiles including birds the sclerotic ring is not just a series of free floating plates which seems to be what a lot of people think it's actually like a uh, a, a tightly integrated very complex system where the 35-ish or so sclerotic plates are tightly uh, um, articulated with one another with like interdigitating uh, like zigzaggy edges which means that that sclerotic rings can fall apart the individual plates can scatter but in dinosaurs including birds the 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 ring tends to want to stay as one particular unit it's therefore imagine you know link that to what i just said about it being embedded within the sclera of the eye its fate is therefore connected to the fate of the eyeball and two things tend to happen to eyeballs number one is that um they're one of the first port um, points of origin for scavengers they literally like peck out eyes or eat eyes and the other thing is that the sclerotic ring floats away in water it it stays totally integrated and like is one of the first things to detach from a, uh, a decomposing carcass in water Stay, stays whole and goes away and then is composed of such thin plate-like bones that yeah it gets destroyed quite quickly whereas the whole skull the whole skull with every single tooth intact and other ossifications palpable bones in place might be 100 percent complete but the sclerotic ring floats away did a bunch of experiments with bird skulls to um to study this and always found the sclerotic plate flowing away even in uh like skulls i used a lot of woodpecker skulls of like six centimeters long oh yeah um, so yeah so and i wrote all this up and it went in that book and <laughs> So, so um, right, that was good. Um, shall we move on to? Oh, bloody hell! We haven't even we haven't even got to the end of news for the world of Darren and John. Um, <laughs> my uh, uh, article uh, in Biological Sciences Reviews, which I uh, you know mentioned way back when. Um, is now published it's got like look at this hilarious photo of me suffering from existential angst or something i look terrible um <laughs> uh, becoming a science writer and this is the article where i said yeah don't do it just don't waste your time basically <laughs> uh, hey do you want to become a science writer yeah no yeah you just just don't, don't, don't just, just don't. don't. They did. Um, they didn't like my um, really negative take on on science writing, and they tried to like uh, big it up. 
Um, I'll, tell you, I'll, so I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll, I'll read at the very end of this show, I'll just read uh, like a, one or two negative paragraphs. Just to, um, yeah, bring it down. Yeah. Bring it down at the end. <laughs> um, I will illegally release a PDF online at some point because a lot of people are like, okay, it's no secret. It's no secret that most people are terrible writers. Um, that's true for a lot of people who are paid to, to write, <laughs> but it's mostly true for people who aren't paid to write because most of us have to write stuff. It's like an inescapable fact of like modern life. You have to write stuff in a, in a job. And um, a lot of people are just absolutely terrible at it. So, uh, and, and I'm not saying this to, to be like, oh, but, but me, I mean, I'm a good writer. What I mean is like, how do you, how can you be a good writer? It's like, nobody really knows. Where do you go for advice on this? Um, it said it said a lot in my line of work. It's like, why aren't people better at writing? It's like, well, I don't know. It's just, like, it's just not something that's really taught, nor do people know how to do things properly. Um, also, writing is just hard. Yeah. And I realise this when I'm in a like a good mood and the brain's firing, I can just write. But sometimes if I'm tired and I'm like. The other ninety-eight percent, and I find it, and I and I look at it, and I think, oh my god, what a mess! And I have to spend like a long time rearranging things, rewriting sentences, even in short things, you know. And um, yeah, I think writing's just really hard. I don't think it's easy at all. Um, yeah, I think my writing sorry, writing well and in a structured way that's easy to understand. Uh, writing is, good, writing good, yeah. Writing goodly. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I think it's just hard. I, I, don't, um, I don't think there's a mystery, um, yeah. really. <laughs> so in, in view of that, I've quite a few uh, people I know have said, well, I'd really be interested in reading your article because it's like, yeah, how do you become a, you know, what, what, are, what are the secrets to like writing well? Mm. It's like, well, let's pretend this article gives the answers to that. Of course, it doesn't. <laughs> um, but uh, I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I just throw together some words. My my main. No, no I'm not going to start giving advice. My main piece, but I'll say this. I will tell you this. I will tell you this. My main uh, piece of advice to people that want to write well is like, learn how to write in a way that captures the way we talk. Honestly, that's it. I I think that. Um, the thing that the thing that really bugs me is that uh, there are, there's a whole load of conventions and traditions about how written language works or, or how we're supposed to use written language, and it's like I kind of don't care. That doesn't do what I need it to do. It's like there's you know, oh you're only allowed to you can never start a sentence with the word but or you can never use a contraction in this sense or or here you can't have parentheses as well as hyphens or whatever. It's like screw that. It's like does it work in terms of people understanding the, the you know, we, we, we don't, we don't, you know, caveat, we do not speak in the way that we write. We do not, and we do not write in the way that we speak. We don't speak in sentences, for example, full stop, um, period. We, we just, we I just, we just, do that. <laughs> <laughs> Stupid Americans. Um, take that America. Take that. US of A. Um, um, yes. Uh, a lot of the rules of writing are, are stupid. Um, those sorts of rules. I, it's like all things. A lot of rules are made to 
catch like really dumb stuff, right? But if you if you know what you're doing even a little bit, you can ignore these rules, I think. Um, you know, it's it's similar to painting. If you read some of the rules, it's 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 crazy. But there are people out there who thinks that think there are rules of painting. And one of the rules you'll read is never use black. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's like, what are you people crazy? I mean, if you want it, black doesn't exist. Doesn't exist in the natural world. <laughs> oh God. So ninety-eight yeah. percent of people are, can't see black. Did you know that? <laughs> and so, if you think about it, you can like you can come up with some justifications. People, when they're very naive painters, don't understand the richness of color in the real world. Tend to restrict themselves to very, you know, tree is brown or black even, you know, well, no, not really, um, that sort of thing. And also, if you want your paintings to look like a Monet in a particular period, which is what lots of people think is like the, the greatest of all painting, um, then yeah, okay, don't use black and it'll look more like a Monet, I guess. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I don't know, rules, like what? Mm, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, that was that was a thing that we I, I I studied art at school, and it was yeah no black you're not allowed to so our teacher God bless her Claire Dubowski she was called she even banned the use of black and if you wanted black you had to make your own black from other colours <laughs> so you had to like mix greens and purples and stuff oh Jesus so uh, so I did this like I was, I was painting a horse skull in a desert and there were loads of shadows in it and uh, and it just look rubbish because all the shadows are purple just look rubbish um <laughs> i bet it looked more like a monet though <laughs> it was a monet horse skull in the desert <laughs> with shadows one of my favorite sentences ever is in a so this is going back to the use of language rather than colors in, in painting in a semi-desperate gesture directed to the late sir lawrence van der post i once wrote a letter to sir lawrence van der post he replied I could write you a whole screen on flying snakes, full stop. Because, see, one of the things that we're told in writing is thou must not place subjects late in sentence or thou wilt be guilty of using passive voice. Yeah. <laughs> not the passive voice. It's like in a semi-desperate gesture direct, directed to the late Sir Lawrence Vanderpost, it's like, you haven't even got to the subject yet. When is it? I'm still, what's he saying yet? I don't know. I'm waiting for the, I'm waiting for the subject. It's like, that's that's not how we speak. Ah, sorry, my wires have gotten all tangled up. Um, you got a bit overexcited there. Oh, it's great. I love that line. Then one more time. In a semi-desperate gesture directed to the late Sir Lawrence Vanderpost, the ones wrote a letter to the late Sir Lawrence Vanderpost. And he said, I could write you a whole screen on flying snakes. Um, anyway, sorry. Some people know what I'm talking about. Now we come okay. to the ne <laughs> now we come to the next part of the show called Now bring the tone down. Got to get a bit sad here because. Very sad news. Serious. It's, serious. it's a serious subject, so we've got to be all serious as well. Try and stop thinking about the late Lawrence Vanderpost and flying snakes. 
Um, Freddy the seal is dead. Freddy the seal, named after Freddie Mercury, <laughs> of, all, of all people. Uh, Freddy the seal was a, uh, a famous harbour or common seal uh, sighted regularly on the, t- the banks of the Thames. Did you see Freddy the seal? You live near the banks of the Thames. No, I didn't see him. Because, uh, yeah, like the many times I've like walked or driven over Kew Bridge or any of those bridges around there would have been able to see Freddie basking. That's not his surname. I mean, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Freddie. <laughs> Freddie basking. It's a pretty good name for us. <laughs> oh, this is not going well. Anyway. The whole point is that, okay, so a lot of, I know a lot of people went to see Freddy the Seal, uh, you know, friends and colleagues that went to see this seal. I don't know if it was a male or female or what, but, um, you know, and uh, viewed, photographed or filmed this animal from a respectable distance. And within the last couple of days, uh, Freddy was attacked by a pet dog and, um, and was like really badly injured and was taken to a uh, animal hospital and the injuries were so bad that they um, they euthanized uh, Freddie the seal, and we have to assume that that was the best and right decision. You know, that's the, that that itself is a slightly controversial subject. Um, so currently, t- I'm talking on the 24th of March, 2021. People are basically up in arms and baying for blood for the owner of the dog that um, attacked uh, Freddie because um and and the the person was identified as of yesterday or today uh people know exactly who she is uh these things do tend to turn into like a bit of a sort of pile on witch hunt thing which uh, <laughs> uh you know most of us once it gets to that place is like yeah i do yeah obviously it's absolutely right that that person is prosecuting so but um uh i okay look i i really don't like this stuff I'm not saying she was irresponsible, but was she less responsible than a whole bunch of other people where nothing happens and they get away scot-free, right? I really don't like witch hunts. I don't like yeah, piling yeah. on people for something, which lots of people do um, and don't get in trouble for. We're, we're in, so this is my fault. We're in danger of going off on a tangent here, really, because... Um, that's that was that's an aside the yeah. the larger the larger subject is we have a huge problem uh increasingly people are familiar with the issues associated with free roaming cats there is there is no doubt whatsoever that free roaming cats in this country here in the UK and everywhere people keep cats is like a massive problem it's like the numbers of animals wild animals killed by cats is just like unbelievable it's clearly responsible for like keeping populations of wild animals down and reducing them further to the point of extinction, you know, where there's nothing left. The, the impact of free roaming cats is absurd. There is all, and, and a discussion is, is being had and, you know, more and more people are aware of that. And as a consequence, more and more people are being pressurized into keeping their little mockies indoors and stopping them from killing everything. There is less awareness of free roaming dogs because at the moment in many parts of the world and certainly here in the UK it's considered perfectly fine to take your beloved little furry child <laughs> which is how most people see their dogs and by the way I'm a dog owner here um it's uh, yeah it, it's considered okay for you to take your dog to a place where you want to let your dog have some exercise and to release it off the leash and for the dog to go around and do whatever it wants now 
I'm going to say in like more than 90% of cases, your dog runs around the park, it runs along the beach, and it probably doesn't really have any interaction with any aspect of wildlife. But in a number of cases, uh, dogs quite happily, you know, charge up to birds that are trying to rest on mudflats or nesting, ground nesting birds on beaches and in fields and in the woods and stuff. And uh, they find, you know, like deer and small animals, whatever. And um, it's uh, either leads to the destruction or death of the wild animals, or at least a constant disturbance. And it's that constant disturbance thing that's, um, you know, if you go to a beach and watch like a group of like birds that have just they've just like flown here from the arctic or from you know sub-saharan africa or something and they need to rest they literally can't because it's like every every 10 minutes they're moved on by someone else's pet dog you know on a on a, on a beach uh on a any like sunday here in the the uk there's like i don't know a stretch of beach like a thousand dogs on it it's like there's no chance for any birds to ever have a rest so basically the incident with Freddie the seal is part of this larger problem. The fact that people think, I'm not blaming the dogs here, you know, it's, 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 always, it's always to do with ownership. It's like, it's not okay for people to be in this mindset where they think you take a dog to a wild slash countryside type environment. Bear in mind, I have a, you know, weird British perspective on this because we don't really have any countryside. It's just like tiny little pockets here and there of denuded, um, you know, damaged um, remnants. Um, yeah, people take their animals to these places and it's, and it's okay to just let the dog do what it wants. And, um, and that includes nature reserves. In any, any, you go to a nature reserve on any day and you'll see people like letting their dogs run around again, doing what the hell it likes. So um, that that's the larger context of the Freddy the Seal situation. It's like... Yeah, although we should say that the... Um... The banks of the Thames in Hammersmith are not exactly a nature reserve. Maybe um, they should be. <laughs> well, maybe they should be. Well, it is a place that's frequented by lots of, uh, you know, like there's, there's birds along the shoreline and all kinds of stuff. So, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I agree that, the, I mean, obviously, I think there things can be done to make the impact less bad. But I also think that we should concentrate on where the impacts are bad. And I would I'd be curious to know, like, obviously, the cat thing has been studied pretty well. I'd be yeah. interested to know what sort of, because it might be that very small changes, like, okay, nature reserves, you can't just let your dog run. And that's sufficient, right? That it's actually the problem outside of nature reserves is, is not huge, right? Um, in terms of disturbing animals that would be there anyway, I guess. Uh, I don't know. I just, yeah, I, I, um, it's an easy sort of bandwagon to jump on, I guess. That sounds a bit dismissive. It's not really, I understand. But I do think that we need to be a little more, because also, lots of people are just going to be, nah, screw you, we hate this. Yeah. Yeah. You're dumb. You just want to get rid of all pets. So, um, yeah. Yeah, well, there's, there's... we need to be a bit strategic about what, 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 where are the real pain points, and what can we do that is not going to impinge too much on people actually owning things in the yeah. owning pets in the first place. I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot to unpack on this, I and I don't, you know, I could easily talk about it for hours, which I don't want to. And okay, so first of all, because it's like newsworthy at the moment, then you know, like I'm acutely aware of the fact that it is bandwagoning, so uh, and and you know, piling on. I don't want to be involved in that. Um, 
and there's also like you know a huge amount of rage because people feel connected there's some kind of connection to you know freddie the seals was, was uh, i mean oh my god a named individual that's beloved of people that go and see it and is killed by a dog is yeah. uh you know it's the worst combination of uh, things and i also take your point very much that like well an animal in the middle of a like one of the busiest cities in the world it's like is it a surprise that a uh uh you know it could get in trouble with a dog and i think lots of the uh the hysteria that's uh, emerged about like how bad things could have been you know the, the a common complaint i've seen on my twitter timeline is that because that dog attacked a seal then that's evidence that that dog was um uncontrollable dog and and it could have killed someone's child which on the one hand the there yeah there may well be something in that on the other hand that may be complete hysteric nonsense like I do not trust my dog with other animals, but that doesn't mean that he's a he's a West Highland Terrier, by the way. He, uh, you know, I've I've seen him kill rats, um, like rats and toddlers. They're not that different. So you know, would he kill a toddler? Well, I don't know, but I wouldn't let him. Uh, in in every interaction he's ever had with a person, it's always been very positive. He's not uh, been uh, you know interested in. Yeah, I mean, so. dogs definitely see people and other animals differently. Dogs have yeah. a relationship with people that they understand. Yeah, yeah. I, don't, I don't think that line of argument is particularly fruitful. No, but I do. But I do think that the whole question, the whole cultural thing, is like um, uh, it should be. So, so this is this is a particularly problematic example because it because it's the Bank of the Thames in London. Where, where it's like where it's nudged into this lar larger broader debate is about the fact that people seem entitled to let their dogs do whatever the hell they like wherever they take them and so then you do come onto this area of like um places that are designated wildlife places like richmond park everyone knows richmond park's got free roaming deer and yet like every every day a thousand people release their dogs to run around it's like you should you literally shouldn't do that given that you know they're a free roaming deer like you obviously don't care about the welfare of the deer and you're also being pretty reckless with the welfare of your own um your own dog we've got like loads of parks that have got no wildlife whatsoever because people have already gotten rid of it so those places are, are fine you know let your dog run around as much as it wants there there's even some beaches that are like that okay generally for other reasons like to do with dog mess everywhere people don't let dogs run around on them during, during parts of the year but there there's got to be more of a push to stop it being okay for people to release their dogs in areas where there is wildlife because at the moment there is not sufficient um you know the culture there isn't like a culture that sort of like frowns on that or regards it as a bad thing so you do have constant disturbance of like nesting and resting birds and um, anyone who works in a nature reserve and is and does any monitoring of pond life will tell you that the impact that that pet dogs have on pond life is is vast because every single day every single hour people let their dogs run in the water which isn't just a trivial thing it's not like the dogs going paddling it doesn't matter it's like no they're like really weird stuff like the chemicals in dog shampoo uh, I've got insecticidal properties, so they kill they kill animals in the water. You know, it's like, and and then you've got stuff like killing fleas, yeah, yeah, for, whatever. For, yeah. for lot for lots for lots of ponds, um, you know, how much silt there is in the water has a big impact on uh, the biology of certain animals. So yeah. constant disturbance, which you get when people take their dogs, means that. Um, 
yeah, obviously, I think that letting dogs run free in nature reserves is crazy. And um, it sounds crazy to me, and I suppose that might be because it isn't legal in Australia, although someone might correct me. But I always felt like it wasn't something you did. You didn't go to a nature reserve with a dog and let it run around, right? Um, well, people do, people do here in the UK. Yeah, yeah, no, I hear what you're saying. And yeah. I think that this is one of the really obvious um, <laughs> jumping off points here. Like just, yeah, okay, well, maybe we should just stop that because that's obviously nuts, right? To get to have a whole bunch of <laughs> your little predators and deliberately release them in a nature reserve. It's like, well, <laughs> yeah, we could just not do that. And there's so many places that aren't nature reserves that, um, yeah, um, that does seem fairly obvious to me. Uh, in in an uncharacteristic move, the discussion meanders drunkenly all over the place, uh, which is what's going to happen. Um, the alleged persistence of the thylacine or Tasmanian wolf or Tasmanian tiger. This is something that kind of combines um, a newsworthy thing together with uh, material covered at the blog Touchboard Zoology, things I've written about recently. There's quite a number of um, researchers uh, in both mainland Australia and the island state of Tasmania. Is, Ta is Tasmania a state? It is, isn't it? Yeah, I'm pretty yes. sure it is. Yeah. There's, there's, there's researchers. Uh, they, tend to be, they tend to be amateur researchers. Like, uh, this is not intended. This is, I don't mean this to be negative. They tend not to have any qualifications. They tend not to be like, you know, zoologists, biologists. They tend not to even have like established uh you know like natural history credentials they just tend to be like interested teams of, of amateurs who really get into mystery search for mystery creatures and um they amass like collections of alleged thylacine sightings um and then they often become really quite aggressive about like the thylacine is definitely alive and my mate bobby saw one and um and those <laughs> um you know, uh, uh, often with a strong mainstream science, uh, a, a, st a strong anti-mainstream science feeling, as is <laughs> very characteristic of people really into this sort of stuff. The, the thylacine, as almost everyone listening to this will know, is generally regarded as having gone extinct in 1936, when the last captive individual died in Hobart's domain zoo. The animal died of neglect, um, obviously 1936, you know, time of the depression, uh, they didn't have sufficient staff to look after the animal properly. And, um, they didn't like bring it indoors at night and stuff. So it was, you know, I, I, I don't know. I don't know how cool it gets at night in Tasmania, but, um, the animal was, yeah, it was, it would still, it would still need shelter, wouldn't it? It would need to be yeah. in a den or something. And, and apparently it didn't have that. So there is an argument that it died partly through, uh, uh, neglect, um, there, there's a, a popular idea that the animal was called Benjamin and that it was male. Now, a book that I wanted to have to hand and I don't is Henry Paddle's The Last, uh, what's it called? The Last Tasmanian Wolf or The Last Tasmanian Tiger. That documents the, um, the, the, the story of this last thylacine. And, um, and it's an interesting book because um, it's, been seen by some as like a definitive you know very scholarly uh, volume on um, you know everything about thylacines 
uh, it's Robert Paddle, The Last Tasmanian Tiger, The History and Extinction of Thylacine. It looks very scholarly and it's, you know, reference and everything. Um, uh, and, and, I, and I've like long looked at it in that way. It's like, wow, this is like the you know, really thorough look at thylacine extinction. I am told, however, by specialist researchers on the thylacines that on the thylacine that a lot of the stuff in the book is um, kind of involves reading between the lines and like if you actually check paddles specific references they're not accurate it's like he'll cite you know like the art the next article in the respective volume or get the page numbers wrong or there's loads of technical errors in it apparently i haven't looked into this myself but i'm, I'm told that so it may not be as authoritative as is sometimes thought anyway that's a tangent um that last thylacine died in 1936 now, of course, what happens when the last captive individual of an animal dies is in none of the cases do people go, oh, my God, that was the last one, because they're not thinking that at the time. They think, yeah, thylacines are pretty rare, but they're still alive because we've got one here. And if this one dies, we're going to get another one. It's then like within the next 10 years, people realize, wait a sec, let's go and find some more. Um so people did, you know, they knew by the late 1930s that thylacines in Tasmania were very rare. They went and looked for them. They found like a couple of tracks and a couple of den sites. So people are still thinking, yeah, late 1930s are probably still around. 1940s, people were still looking for them as well, thinking, yeah, they're probably still like the low numbers, but they're probably still around. But then you've also got people at this point saying, wait a minute, are you sure they're still around? Because the evidence you're coming up with is not that good. Surprisingly, as late as 1961, um, this is an article by Desmond Morris, who is a you know, well-known zoologist, author of The Naked Ape and many other things. Um, the marsupial wolf of thylacine is one of the rarest mammals alive today. <laughs> He's saying that in <laughs> 1961. For many years, it has even been feared that it has become totally extinct. A recent communication from Mr. Norman Laird of Berrydale, Tasmania, establishes, however, that it's still surviving. He reports that on August 18th, 1961, two fishermen from Strahan, or Strahan on the west coast of Tasmania thought they had trapped the animal at Sandy Cape, a very wild and rugged region. Tests from the trap later proved that they had indeed caught a thylacine but it was so savage that it escaped <laughs> so savage <laughs> <laughs> it was really rude about their clothes and everything this is the first definite proof for 30 years that the species is not extinct a hopeful situation but not one to be taken optimistically okay a later communication from jh calaby of the commonwealth scientific and industrial research organization uh, wildlife survey section at Canberra, Australia, gives further information concerning the tests made in this case. The material from the trap that was tested was hair, and the hair comparisons were made by Dr. E. R. Geiler. That's the famous Eric Geiler of thylacine fame, those of you who know this stuff, of the University of Tasmania. The last thylacine to be seen in this country died at, at Desmond, is, um, Desmond Morris is based in the UK, died at Regent's Park on 9th of August, 1931. It was a female and it lived in the gardens for a period of five and a half years. The first thylacines to come to the society was a pair presented on 16th May 1850, and a number of others were exhibited between this date and 1926. Now we hear all the time about that 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 
that one uh, uh, on um, Hobart's Domain Zoo in 1936, but it's really interesting to know that there was one like in London in 1931. <laughs> so yeah. you see what I mean about them not necessarily saying, ah, that was the last one. That's not what they thought. They thought they're, they're, they're rare. This is a really rare animal, but um, I'm sure it's fine. Tasmania is a wild and rugged place. So there isn't like a definite cutoff for their extinction. Yeah. So, so, and, and what I just read, that's from Proceedings of the Zoological Society of London, published 1961. So 1961, you've still got what I think there was a fairly optimistic take that they're really rare, but they're still there. There's lots of living animals where we might say the same thing, although today, you know, technology means we can maybe get camera trap footage of them or whatever. But um, if you then, you know, if you're thinking of the case in the 60s, I don't think it's unreasonable to bring that forward to what I regard as the modern age because it overlaps with my own longevity. It's like then think of what does that mean for the 1970s and 1980s? I think that if you're seeing people saying that in 19, the 1960s the animals are still alive, they might have been totally wrong, by the way. I'm not saying this, that proved it because it, clearly it didn't. But if they're saying in the 60s they're alive, then going forward to the 70s and 80s, you can understand this. it was still not be unreasonable to think they're really really rare there's only a handful but even if there's a handful we all know from movies like harry and the hendersons that um even if there's only three of them left that's the breeding population <laughs> you only have to have a male and a female they can build up their numbers from there right so um i think that you could say you could say i'm not saying i'm not saying you should say i'm saying you could say in the 70s and 80s that there could still be thylacines alive because they're still like Desmond Morris is saying in the proceedings of the Zoological Society of London in the 60s, they found evidence for them. They still persist. Well, of course, the 70s and the 80s is basically the situation that exists then with regard to Australasian mystery animals is exactly the same as it is now. Dedicated bands of fairly esoteric amateurs who are reporting claimed sightings of these animals. And by the 70s and 80s, people aren't just claiming to see live thylacines in Tasmania. They're claiming to see them north to south, east to west, across the whole of Australia. It's not like they um, that claimed mainland sightings are limited to like the uh, Garoki in Western Victoria, the arse end of nowhere, or Cape York Peninsula. It's like, no, they're everywhere. There's like north to south, east to west. Okay, not in the great central desert. You know, obviously, it's always wooded places. But um, um, the, uh, the, the trope of the surviving thylacine from the 1970s onwards is like the most active area of cryptozoological research in Australasia. Australia, sorry, because I keep I don't want to imply that Tasmania isn't part of Australia. Um, so in the 80s, you get a couple of people that claim to like photograph thylacines well. Enough for like massive quote marks around the, the word well there. Enough so that it said that this is this is convincing. Some academics saying this is convincing. And I wrote in particular about the case of uh, Kevin Cameron. Um, I've forgotten basically all the details, even though I only wrote about it, I don't know, like a couple of weeks ago. Uh, oh, no, I didn't write about it at all. It was on it was on Twitter. That's why it's not in my mind. Um, this guy called Kevin Cameron, he said that he uh, saw a live thylacine in Western Australia and uh, saw it digging. 
and this is 1986, I think, crept up on it and uh, took a bunch of photos of its back end. So it's like rump, part of its hind limb and its tail. And um, they're really good. Uh, well, they're, they're, they're color photos. Actually, they're from 1985, sorry. Um, they're from Girraween in Western Australia. Five photos. And they were published in um, New Scientist by a guy called Athel Douglas, who's, uh, I believe, uh, was a qualified uh, biologist. And um, yeah, it's like you've got a bunch of people that are saying immediately this is a hoax. Um, Douglas did backpedal a little bit on the case because um, when he got to see the, like, the strip of negatives and everything, um, Cameron had modified them he'd like removed some frames and apparently in some of the images there were like Shh. Cameron said that he was alone when he saw this thylacine but mm -hmm. the apparently the photos in the images showed that he wasn't there were other people and um uh Douglas's conclusion which he later published in um uh, a paper published in journal of cryptozoology he said that um what he thought had happened is that Cameron had actually shot a thylacine then realized he could be in a lot of trouble for doing it and then posed the carcass and made it look like it was live. And that, so the photos were, uh, you know, not of a lot, not of, you know, it was a, of a dead thylacine. Um, my conclusion, and obviously, you know, when I say it's mine, I've stolen it from other people. Um, the, the, the consensus view is that it wasn't a thylacine at all. It just doesn't, just doesn't work. It's just not right in terms of like the proportions of what the animal was like, according to like where he was photographed. If you want to see these photos, um, oh my god, I did. I, that's really weird. My, I, I was just, I was absolutely sure I'd published a Tetsu article on this. It turned out it's a, it's a Tetsu crypto mega thread on Twitter. So I did a Twitter thread all about the Cameron photos. I didn't Tetsu it. So if you follow me on Twitter, I'm at at Tetsu. <laughs> um, you can find it as one of my Tetsu crypto mega threads. But um, so that's so that that is a story from the eighties. Yeah. So I am looking at these photos. I don't, you know, I, don't, I must have missed that in the I missed the mega thread. It's got to be some other animal, right? Just something else. I don't like. Yeah, a I dog or something. A weird dog. I don't know. Or is it? Yeah. Or is it a model? Because you only see like you know the rump and the tail and a bit of the back leg. You don't really. It's really strange. Yeah, I think I'd have to go through every single marsupial there is and see if it could be something weird going on with one of them, like, I don't know, mangy tail or something. You know, something weird that makes it making it look a little bit different. But that's my gut on that, that it's something else. That and weird. They, they took photos. He took photos of it because, oh, it looks like it looks weird. It looks like a thylacine. And then when it poked its head out, oh, no, it's a, I don't know, something else. And, and people there were like, oh, yeah, that's boring. But he thought, hmm. <laughs> the original yeah. photos look weird there is a, there's a wallaby called the banded hair wallaby which mm -hmm. is um, uh, if you have a look at pictures of that you'll see that it's got stripes in the right region and it can even have like a ramrod straight like tail that can stick out of that angle um, and it has been suggested that that could have been the animal he actually photographed the problem is that that animal the banded hair wallaby is like so far as we know, and, th and this, I, I realise I'm going into dangerous grounds here because uh, in view of the, the whole claim that there are thylacines alive, is 
like so far as we know that animal is like super rare it's extinct on the mainland and it's only present on a couple of like offshore islands um off um western australia i've actually forgotten the name of them Rot- rottenest island is that one of the places where it occurs i can't remember it's on a couple of a couple of islands off the coast so so to say that you've just stumbled into one of those is not that different from saying you stumbled into uh, a thylacine yeah then again, then again, I mean, you know, the uh, the case of the um, the the is it the night parrot or the ground parrot? I can never remember. You know, you've got these amazing cases in um, Australian um, rediscovery. Yeah, uh, I mean, just straight off, the, if you just if you just go by the photos, that I think that's a more likely identification of what it is, right? Yeah. Um, it's much closer to the known range. <laughs> um, I, 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 of course, I have, there's, a, there's all the stuff around it, so we don't really. Yeah, it, it was it was night parrot I was thinking of, which was like extinct for decades and then rediscovered in like about 20, 2018. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that the um, Cameron's photos do show Lagostrophus, the banded hair wallaby. I'm just saying that, that is a suggestion that's out there. And and yeah. like your your point that you know is it some other animal? I think is. Uh, is the way to go i don't think he photographed a a live thylacine at all but um i'm now a little bit uncertain as to why i went down that route i think it's because i was thinking i'd covered it on tetsu but i hadn't the reason that thylacines are in the news is because a team of researchers and here we're going we're moving away from the australian mainland going back to tasmania a team they call themselves something like the thylacine awareness group um they claim tag (laughs) can you do a tasmanian accent (laughs) i don't do australian accents uh... (laughs) they claim to have photographed some live thylacines and uh they did. Uh, I feel like we might have. Co- we can't have covered this in the podcast because it would have been too long ago. I, I've I've written about it a lot, so apologies to those who've heard this already. But um, so, and again, I've discussed. I've discussed exactly what I'm about to say. I've discussed exactly this, and it goes as follows. Um, you release a video and you say, "Guess what, everyone? We photographed a live thylacine three, and it's a uh, it's definitive." We've checked the footage. It shows a mother and a father in a little joey. And uh, <laughs> and uh, it's absolutely definitely a thylacine. So a bunch of thylacines. So scientists, middle finger to you. Um, and, it's, and we're going to release the footage shortly. <laughs> All right. Okay, you release that, right? <laughs> just so Mr. Neil Waters of this uh, thylacine awareness group did exactly that. <laughs> it's just a, it's just a little video of him walking along in a field drinking a can of beer. He says what I just said, and <laughs> and it's like, okay, so let me get this straight. You're claiming that you've got this like you know bombshell, amazing, definitive footage, holy grail of cryptozoology, live thyl- definitive live thylacine footage. Why have you re- why have you started the process by releasing a video saying what you've got? So on the other occasions where this has happened, um, n- another case that springs to mind is uh, I've forgotten his name. There was, there was a guy a couple of well, a couple of years ago, a guy some years ago, who claimed to have like killed a Bigfoot and he had a frozen one. 
and he did the same thing. It's like all this fuss about we've got a dead Bigfoot. It's like, no, what you should do is is have an official press conference. Somehow, somehow you can, this can be done, I assure you. You go to the the you know the the reliable important journalistic um, outlets, and you say this is well, this is not a joke. This is one hundred percent serious. Here's proof that it's serious. You you arrange a press conference, and that is where you drop the bombshell. You don't drop a um, preemptive a, like claim that you're going to drop a bombshell. That's what you do when it's a fake, just to drum up interest. Oh, so, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think Rick. Dryer or yeah, I think Rick Dyer or Dryer was the name of the um the Bigfoot in a freezer case. And do you know what it turned out to be, John? Was it a real dead Bigfoot in a freezer? Oh, it was totally a real <laughs> Bigfoot in a freezer. <laughs> it totally was. That's why Bigfoot's real. No, it was a model with some like I don't know dog dog's guts or something. But so they did the same thing. Neil Waters walking along saying, "We've got a thought I've seen," and um um as soon as it's like checked by some group that know that seems to know what they're talking about and i forget you know who it was um, so did they release the video then they released the video they released some stills this is this is the the, the newest article at tetrapod zoology which you of course know and have read clearly <laughs> tetrapod zoology you say <laughs> yeah it's a blog it's written by oh, me right. um the uh when did you start <laughs> the, that the <laughs> <laughs> um, it turns out that they'd um, filmed and photographed uh, Tasmanian pedomelons, which are very familiar wallabies. Um, and they just photographed them at certain angles where if you are like bizarrely non-critical and bizarrely accepting of like the flimsiest of evidence, you can say, oh, it does look a bit like a thylacine. But... I'm like, okay, so clearly they come out of this looking like, you know, I don't want to be too mean, but I don't know, maybe I should be. But they come out of this looking like complete idiots, complete amateur hacks. Because it's like, how the hell could you photograph these wallabies at these weird angles? And like, it's, you know, it's, 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 it's clear that you've made a massive mistake. But that's not what gets me. What gets me more is like, what, where do... Where, why is it that these amateur groups often sit on a, um, if you imagine scepticism being like some line with hardcore absolute rejection of everything <laughs> at one end and idiotic acceptance of everything at the other end? Why do these people sit somewhere on that line that's so close to them being prepared to accept the most like the most flimsiest most pathetic of evidence you know how well uh, there's an answer and it's really obvious Mulder had a poster about it i want to believe it's just motivated reasoning they want to believe it's life's boring if there's not a thylacine there's got to be a thylacine so you motivate all your reasoning around that and I think yeah, but, that's just the explanation. But that's, they're, not a, they're not after the truth. They just want that to be the truth. That's that's all understandable to a, to a degree. My point is that if you um, if I photograph a living thylacine, and there's like a fifty percent chance that it could be a fox or a pedomelon, would I release it as good enough? Because hypothetically, obviously. I would release it and say, this is, let's say it's 50% convincing. My thinking is that you would release that and say, 
could this be a thylacine? Because I'm not sure. Could it be? It's got some suggestive features, but it's got some things counting against it. They're not doing that. They've got something that's like 2% convincing, and they're saying it's definitely a thylacine. They're not even saying, could this be a thylacine? If they'd released this, if they'd, if they'd released this, these images and said, we photographed this mammal, a bunch of three individuals, could it be a thylacine? Let us know what you think then it's like, yeah, okay, I can see why you think it's a thylacine, but it's clearly not. Whereas that's not their, that's not their um, you know, their, their, their mindset. Their mindset is, that's a bloody thylacine. And, and if, and if you don't understand, if you don't see that, well then you're just, you, you're just not even able to see. You yeah, it's really difficult to um understand the motivations of people in some ways. Um, and I think that the fact that they release teaser stuff makes me super skeptical of their motivations. Like, uh, I don't know whether I'd be skeptical of everyone in the organization. I, but I think like a lot of these things, you get people who are true believers. They actually believe there's a thylacine. They really hope that that video is a thylacine. But then I think you have people who don't really believe it and are doing it for attention and, you know, drumming up publicity and because it's too deliberate to to release that video, teaser videos and stuff like that. That's all just hoaxing, right? And I think there's a hoaxing um, motivation there, which isn't necessarily anything to do with thinking thylacines are real. It might be because you might think I'm hoaxing them because they're real mm. and I want people to take it seriously. But I've got a I've got you know, I've got a lot of sympathy for people who want them to be real and a have some video which they think might be it even if they're even if they're laughably mistaken you know fine just release the video and say i think this could be a thylacine everyone goes nah it's not well okay mm. there we go but to do the whole song and dance around yeah we've got the video it's coming out soon blah 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 that's when i just think come on you're yeah this is yeah I don't, well, I, I don't i think you can be mean about that stuff I, yeah i agree you shouldn't be mean about people who, who 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 genuinely believe they could be on the track of something and they're just mistaken but yeah I, I think you can be a bit mean about people who do the dance of hoaxing i don't think so i actually don't think in view of the history of loads of these people and this particular this group in particular and virtually all the other groups like it no doubt no doubt there are people attached to these groups i don't, I don't want to say organizations that makes it sound too formal but there's no doubt are there people attached to these groups that that are in it for shits and giggles and um you know are going along with it because it's a bit of a laugh or you know because because they are of a hoaxy kind of mindset but overwhelmingly i don't think that's the case overwhelmingly i do think these people this group in particular do honestly think honestly think that that, that that thylacines are alive and that they are finding evidence for it and that they've got convincing evidence for it and there's just something you know like broken about their approach to how you convince other people that's the mm. that's the key thing here i mean i'm convinced from my own writing research my own experience that convincing yourself about seeing something is not difficult what we yeah, like so I, I so I don't doubt that a lot of these people do think thylacines are alive because in some cases they've actually seen things and they've come away thinking that they have seen live thylacines. Yeah. That's like a fundamental human thing. People think they see stuff and they've actually made a mistake. What I can't understand is why those people 
then think that that like kind of experience is convincing to anyone else because surely if you're interested in something as controversial as the claim that thylacines are persisting you need to have convincing evidence to convince others who are quite rightfully and understandably skeptical and that isn't there that just isn't on their radar at all it never is with these people they never they never seem to have an understanding of the the standard of evidence you would need to convince anyone who's got any shred of skepticism and of course, when you talk about skepticism, a lot of these people, no disrespect intended, but a lot of people who are really into, you know, mystery stuff, whether it's animals or ghosts or whatever, they hear the word skepticism and they equate skepticism with knee jerk, blinkered, debunk, debunker, debunker mindset. And that's not what it means at all. It's like, it's just a, a reasonable level of like for god's sake if you've got if you're making a controversial claim you need to have a level a piece of evidence that when placed on the table is like oh yeah actually that's really impressive i think you're under something not ha 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 what a joke you look like absolute idiots for promoting this so <clears throat> the second thing i want to i want to say here is that this this team it turns out i didn't know this when i wrote the tetrapod zoology article they've got a long history of responding to skeptical claims so there's cases where like biologists of all kinds like everyone from you know people from technical qualified thylacine experts all the way to just people interested in conservation naturistry ecosystem stuff in the region have said yeah your evidence is rubbish um or, or you haven't got any good evidence their response has been Utter, yeah has been like the worst kind of negative response like you are so clueless you can't even use your eyes sorry can you hear teddy in the background barking his little head off <laughs> yeah god damn dog um so i could say a lot more but remember there's like you know it's a it's a fascinating phenomenon the the persisting thylacine thing because we're talking about like over as of 1994 or so, when Helian Cropper wrote what's probably still the best book on Australian mystery animals, it's called Out of the Shadows. When they wrote that book, they were aware of over 500 documented post-1936 thylacine sightings, which come all the way up to, you know, modern times for them, all the way up to the 1990s, and have obviously continued beyond that. Um, it's not, you know, the, the, the claimed persisting thylacine is australia's most uh you know it's da darling cryptozoologist darling cryptid rather so you know forget the bunyip and the yowie and the queens and tiger those are all nothing it's 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 mostly mainland thylacines yeah I'll move I, guess, for mainland thylacines. I guess um thylacine seems to be one of the most um uh, plausible of the sort of famous this is even is it even a cryptid i guess it is i guess it is yeah like lots of things are lots of cryptids are things that are thought to be extinct yeah by mainstream science and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. yeah it's just it's just one of the more plausible ones i guess well it? the mainland the mainland thing is weird because you know they we know they were present on the mainland from you know fossils and even mummified specimens and they're all thousands of years old so mainland thylacines are supposed to have like not been extant for at least 3,500 years, probably more. And yet people claim to see them like, like I say, north to south, east to west, not just, not just restricted to like the forest belt of Queensland. Yeah, it really, um, it really sort of 
strains credulity and makes yes. the case weaker, right? That yeah, yeah. Well, you spot them everywhere. It's a bit like spotting Bigfoot in Florida or whatever. It's like oh, or in or okay. in England, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Bigfoot Bigfoot UK. And I I think the the evidence that it is a um, socio cultural phenomenon is the fact that the the mainland thylacines that these people say they see they're talking about the thylacine as it was imagined as like a yeah, as imagined in popular culture like during the 1930s 40s and 50s the the thylacine they describe is a wolf-sized super predator that can rip the throat out of a kangaroo it's like a giant like hefty wolf-sized thing whereas you know science Oh dear, not science. That's the worst thing ever. What's that ever done for us? The sciencey view of the thylacine is that it's like more like kind of fox or jackal sized animal. It's like, you know, less than 20 kilos. It's a predator of small things. It's not like a timber wolf, you know, sized like macro predator. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, they're, they're, um, yeah. Oh, and one in, uh, last thing I'll say is that the popular explanation for these thylacine sightings is that people are seeing red foxes because of course european um colonists introduced the red fox all over australia it's everywhere so when people say they see uh, thylacine in australia it's like yeah it's just a fox and some of the things that have been filmed definitely are foxes in cases sometimes in cases of mangy foxes with skinny tails look quite odd when it comes to tasmania there's a particular like controversy there because um if you just explain away uh, a Tasmanian thylacine sighting as a fox, did you know there's no foxes on Tasmania? And there's been this long search to prove <laughs> whether there are or are not foxes on on Tasmania, in Tasmania. And uh, current thinking is no. I don't know if there ever were, but mm -hmm. there apparently aren't. So that can't just be used as an explanation. So um, if people are... If people are seeing animals and misidentifying them as thylacines, they're seeing something else, or is it like pedomelons or feral cats even, or is it they're not seeing anything at all? And that it is, you know, this like expectant attention, the fact that they're seeing, you know, movement in a bush and it's like, it's got to be a thylacine. Yeah, I mean, there are dogs on Tas in Tasmania, obviously. So, yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah, I guess that's the other thing that is a bit worrying about getting groups to do this because a lot of our perception is based on what other people say we're seeing, what people agree they're seeing. And if you go out in a group to do this stuff, you're even more likely to think everything's a thylacine. If you're all expecting to see thylacines and wanting to see them and someone says, I think that's a thylacine, you're more likely to go, yeah, yeah, I think it is, right? It actually affects your perception. So it's sort of in some ways, <laughs> yeah. it's a bad idea to make a group yeah. that is... Uh, expecting and wanting to see something because you will i don't want to use the term groupthink but yeah i mean groupthink i think is um is a similar phenomenon but i'm talking more like just raw perception that you will see things um in a certain way because our brain does so much processing of what we see that if you're given prompts you will see this thing it's like the um have uh, you seen those videos? There was one was doing the um, rounds recently. But what is this person saying, sinking to their lips? And you know, you tell, you say this person is saying, or even a sound. You say, okay, this sound is, are these words, and you can totally hear it. But then you're told, oh, it's this, and you can totally hear that as well. 
and it's and it can even be crystal clear. Green needle, fine storm. <laughs> Green needle. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I don't know. I think there's something. I think there's a risk of that sort of thing going on. If you if you form a thylacine group and go out and Bigfoot group and you go out as a group and do these things, I think there's a risk of actually warping your perceptions. Yep. All right. So there you go. Could say a lot more about thylacines. Fascinating subject. Let's stop there. Um, so. Um, are you on social media? I am. I'm on Twitter at the John Conway. Um, uh, my website is johnconway.art. Uh-huh. I've recently joined Mastodon. 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 I call it Mastodon. Okay, fine. You do that. <laughs> <laughs> because. <laughs> Oh, it doesn't matter. <laughs> there are some apps. But anyway, um, so, yes, because I really realised that I've whittled my social media presence down to just Twitter alone, and that doesn't feel very comfortable to me. Um, if you want to join Mastodon, um, I actually run a free instance, so anyone that's listening to this podcast is welcome to go to sorapods.win and sign up. I'm there. Yep. Um, I think that's it. Oh, I've got a Patreon. Been going backwards a little bit recently, Darren. Don't like that. I nearly hit 100 and then I started going backwards. There seems to be like some sort of glass ceiling. It's awful. You were complaining about this a few a while back too, weren't you? Uh, the 100 yeah. glass ceiling. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, go to Patreon. The John Con- No, no, no. Patreon.com. John Conway. Yeah, you, we need to, well, we need to consolidate our Patreon things, don't we? Because because I don't want people giving money to the podcast that... Wait a minute. We won't, we've got a Patreon for the podcast. <laughs> we've got which, a Patreon for everything. <laughs> but then we've also got individual podcast uh, Patreons. And at the at tetzu.com... Like, so tetzu.com is home to the... Um, it's, well, like the the tet... The, the tet Tripod zoology section is obviously like just me. That's not yep. for the supporting the podcast, but I and I'm always concerned that people think they're supporting me and the money goes to supporting the podcast, which don't get me wrong, the podcast needs to be supported given that we have to pay uh you know hosting fees. Maybe maybe it's fine. I don't know. I don't know, maybe it's fine. Well, yeah. So we have three. <laughs> I think yeah. it's simple. We have our personal ones. You're Ted Z. I'm John Conway. And we have the podcast one. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, right. Uh, am I on social media? Yes. Yes, I am. Um, I uh, tweet at <clears throat> Echo 3 to Echo 7. <laughs> and old buddy, do you read me? <sighs> After a little static, a familiar voice is heard. Loud and clear, kid. What's up? Well, I finished my circle. I don't pick up any life readings. There is a love life on this ice cube to fill a space cruiser. The sensors are placed. I'm going back. Right, I'll see you shortly. There's a meteorite that hit the ground in here. I want to check it out. It won't take long. He clicks off his transmitter and rains back on his nervous lizard. (laughs) He pats the beast on the head to calm it. Hey, steady girl. What's the matter? You smell something? 
he takes a small device from his belt and starts to adjust it when suddenly a large shadow falls over him from behind he hears a monstrous howl and turns to see an 11 foot tall shape towering over him it is a wampa ice creature wampa 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 <laughs> lunging at him ferociously uh, at Tetsu <laughs> um, I also um, blog at Tetrapodzoology and I also am in the constant need of uh, financial reinforcement at Patreon patreon.com forward slash Tetsu <laughs> alright bye 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 What about the finances of being a science writer? There's not much money in writing of any sort, and least of all in science writing. Typically, a writer must take on a high number of commissions in order to survive. I could not have persevered without the support of a partner who was able to function as the primary, primary wage earner. Even today, as an author of more than 10 science-themed books and with many published articles to my name, I do not and cannot make a living <laughs> from science writing alone, but can only survive by combining my earnings with writing with those I receive from consultancy and editorial work. Good downer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>